Hey there, I'm Andrew Ainsworth, a proud supporter of Sword and Laser, thanks to Patreon.com. It's easy to set up, and what do you get out of it? Endless geeky bantering about the latest sci-fi and fantasy books. So if you want to help out, head over to Patreon.com slash Sword and Laser. Give a little, and get a lot of Veronica mispronouncing things. Welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. Sword and Laser is a book club, but it is so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of science fiction and fantasy, and of course, amazing discussions from fans just like you. But today is very special because we are welcoming back to the show author Ken Liu. Welcome back. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad to be back. Uh, congratulations on the launch of Grace of Kings and uh, and all of the translations and the new and, and the new short story uh, anthology. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Ken is an author and translator of speculative fiction, also a lawyer and a programmer, uh, winner of the Nebula Hugo World Fantasy Awards. He's been published in Everything You Read, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Asimov's Analog, Clark's World, etc. And the debut novel, The Grace of Kings, came out in 2015, is a Nebula nominee and the first volume in a silk punk epic fantasy series called The Dandelion Dynasty. He also released a collection of short fiction that I just mentioned, Paper Menagerie, and other stories uh, this current year. Look at that. Veronica's got a copy That's, of it. That is my copy of The Paper Menagerie, and I have more questions, actually, about the book and its design coming up later in the episode. Awesome. Keep it busy, Ken. Yeah, well, uh, it's good to be busy, right? <laughs> so my first question, uh, though, for you has absolutely nothing to do with genre fiction. And that's uh, how do you think the Sox are going to do this year? Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, uh, but I don't want to say anything. Don't want to make any too overly optimistic predictions, but we will see. I'm, I'm happy. I'm cautiously Happy. You guys have my my panda Pablo Sandoval is is now going to be his first. <laughs> He's doing season. pretty well. He's doing pretty well so far. Are you concerned about his his girth? Uh, you know, I I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take the official line, which is he seems to be doing what he needs to do. There you go. I like it. <laughs> Ken and Veronica are talking about a sport called baseball. The panda is a player. For those of you in Chicago, the Sox refer to the Red Sox, not the White Sox. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah, because you, you live near Boston, right? That's right. Fantastic. I went to school there, and I grew up in Connecticut, so I was raised a Red Sox fan, but now I've transferred all of my allegiances over to the San Francisco Giants. So That's understandable, but still. <laughs> I'm allowed to do that. They're, on different, they're in different leagues, so it's fine. <laughs> So uh, let's start off I, with a question. I know you're a former programmer, so I bet there is at least some reason behind this. Dot name for your for your TLD Kenlu.name. Uh, was it a, was .com just taken, or or what led to that decision? I, I actually own Kenlu.com as well. Uh, so the reason I chose dot name is because you know back then when these uh, top level domain names were coming out, uh, people were trying to make the internet more rational, uh, and so I was being a good citizen. You know the thought was if this is a personal website, it's about me, so I will use dot name uh, as is the recommended practice. Uh, as it turns out, that did not take off. Uh, but I, I liked it. I, I kept it. Uh, it. It seems to be a little bit more memorable when I tell people uh, what the website is. That's and if fine. you own .com already, then if they forget and type in .com, it doesn't matter. It still goes the same place. It, it actually does do a forward. So yeah, yeah. Uh, either will work. 
I would recommend in the future KenLu.pizza. <laughs> I, I like that. Uh, when that happens, I will be sure to grab it. I think At it one happens. Point, I it already exists, out. I'm pretty sure. Dot Pizza exists? Really? Yeah, it's like all the new crazy ones that just got released. I thought Dot right. Pizza was one of the T TDLs, but I have to I go know? check. I, I'm not sure. At one point, I went out and I just bought all the Tom Merritt's because I, like you, Ken, started off going, well, I am not a network. I will not own TomMerritt.net. <laughs> right. Uh, and then eventually I just gave up. Uh, but now there's too many. I'm, I'm just, I, I, now I'm giving up in the other way. Like maybe Tom Merritt.pizza though. It's it does exist. Dot pizza uh, does exist. You can be Ken wow. Lou.pizza. I think you should be that. That, that seems like a good recommendation. I will get up right on that. <laughs> so on your website, on KenLu.pizza, I mean .name, um, it says that you worked as a programmer and a lawyer and that both professions are surprisingly similar. So how, how is that? How are they similar? Okay, so the, the somewhat serious answer is that um, I think programming and practicing the law both require you to manipulate symbolic systems and to create artifacts out of symbols uh, that must function within a rule system and accomplish a specific result. So either you're trying to write a program to accomplish a specific purpose and it has to compile and has to function, or you're trying to draft a legal document, uh, either a brief that persuades the judge to go a certain way, or a contract that accomplishes a particular purpose. Uh, and, and in both cases, you are essentially assembling, constructing uh, symbol artifacts. Uh, the not-so-serious answer uh, is, is one that, that isn't original to me, uh, but in, in computer science, there's a saying that any problem can be solved by an extra level of indirection. Uh, and uh, in, in the law, it turns out that that is true as well. Uh, almost any kind of, uh, so I used to be a tax lawyer, but any kind of tax structuring basically involves creating an extra layer of entities and doing some sort of indirection and flowing the types of income a certain way. So there you go. So you have, in tax law, you fatten the code? Is that what that means? If you will, or you add some pointers, you add some, uh, yeah. some, some, some intervening entities to, uh, to yeah, exactly. And is there then a, a correlation between those professions and writing? Uh, sort of. I mean, I do g give the, 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 the answer that uh, in fiction, you are essentially engaging in something very similar. Uh, once again, you're constructing symbol artifacts, uh, except that this time uh, you're engaged in the rhetoric of uh, the logic of metaphors, uh, is what I would call it. It's not persuasion and it's not functioning uh, code in the way that programming is, but you're still really trying to engage with a set of rules, uh, that is, reader expectation about what good fiction is, and you're trying to converse with readers, uh, both in the present as well as writers from the past. Uh, you're participating in a system that's that's evolving, that's ongoing, and you have to sort of figure out the rules as you go along. So it is related, uh, but in a lot of ways, far less predictable, uh, and therefore also uh, more interesting. I can see, I can definitely see the legal similarity to writing where you're running your words through someone else's brain, whether it's a jury or a judge or a reader, and hoping for a particular effect. Do, do you feel like do you feel like you use those skills that you gained as a lawyer or a programmer when you write? I, I think sometimes, yes. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, um, I, I, have a, I have a sort of more, um, uh, how do I put this, more practical-minded or less uh, highfalutin way of thinking about writing, which is just that I, I, I think you're always, you have to be aware constantly that you're not participating in some sort of eternal, you're, you're not 
when you're writing fiction, you're not engaged with eternal verities. Uh, you're, you're participating in a very specific conversation in a particular reading community at a particular time. There's a tension between, uh, between um, what you're doing and everything that has come before you. you know, in the law, uh, you're not arguing in the vacuum. You're arguing against precedent and against the whole body of, of judgment as to what is a pers persuasive argument, what is an argument that we will accept as making sense. And there's history involved, there's there's path dependency, there are certain arguments that are foreclosed. Uh, you cannot make a privileges and immunities clause argument, for example, on the U.S. Constitution because history has read it out of the Constitution, essentially. So you have to do the due process uh, kind of arguments. Similar in fiction, uh, readers' tastes have changed over time, and the conversation between great works over time has led to certain interpretations of certain types of fiction presentation as, as you know, desirable, and certain other techniques as not desirable. Um, I, as a writer, I feel like uh, you know I use a lot of my uh, awareness of, of precedent and of rhetoric uh, when I write. I think about these issues. I think about history. I think about path dependency. I think about what is a good uh, fiction technique, what is a trope that under the current conditions readers will accept and which ones are not. And at the, at the same time, you know, I, I, I like to be a little bit of a, a rebel, uh, just like lawyers try to be creative when they when they take on cases that are sort of hopeless and they try to create new arguments that will set up a whole new doct doctrine, doctrinal uh, evolution. I try to sometimes take positions and try to uh, use techniques that seem to be out of fashion, and then I try to push things in a way that I feel is better. So yes, there's some some similarity analogy there. Uh, I don't think it's directly applicable, um, but but also there's there's one more thing I want to say, uh, which is that uh, I, I'm sure people who have uh, actually read legal opinions and who have had some experience with the law know this, but. The law is a very story-driven enterprise. Uh, the storytelling is very important for lawyers. Uh, you know, certainly how trial lawyers persuade the judge, uh, sorry, persuade the jury, uh, and how appellate lawyers persuade the judge. But um, you, if you just read a Supreme Court opinion, which you know a lot of people have, uh, what's striking is uh, they they start with this so-called recitation of facts, uh, which is anything but a, a plain recitation of facts. It's it's a narrative. It's a story about what the case is and how the judge views it. And if you read the majority's uh, version of facts and the dissent's version of facts, you'll see that they're strikingly different, and they tell different stories. And and these stories. Uh, support the argument that comes after, and and so you can see how um, uh, someone who's interested in storytelling and rhetoric can can look through these opinions and gain a lot of insight into how the mind works and how we function as a society as a as a species of you know storytelling, uh, being driven by storytelling and storytelling instincts. Well, I think you stated your case about how they're similar <laughs> quite nicely. Yeah, I, I think that point about precedent is really important for people especially in a place like Goodreads where you're like, well, what do you mean that's a, not a good story? I loved this story. And they, because we all bring everything we've read before to whatever we're reading, we're going to have a different opinion. Someone who's never read a particular type of story before will think it's original. Someone who's read that trope a million times will not. So it, it it's one of the reasons we have so many differing opinions about what we read, I think. Absolutely right. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly what I, I try to keep in mind that yeah. all the time in discussions. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Grace of Kings. Uh, we mentioned it is the first in a silk punk series earlier. You had a great piece that you wrote on live science about it, how it blends science fiction and fantasy in ways similar to steampunk, but with a different flair. Tell us about silk punk. 
Sure. Uh, so, uh, soap punking, in a lot of ways, is uh, constructed by analogy with steampunk, as you mentioned. Uh, so, steampunk is not merely uh, a kind of um, uh, uh, setting. It's it's really an aesthetic. Uh, it's it, it imagines. Um, it takes as a starting point the technology milieu and the moral milieu, really, of uh, 19th century uh, England, uh, this imperialistic, expansionistic society uh, that's very much driven by chrome and steel and steam uh, and, and this boundless optimism about the power of technology. And, you know, mixes in a lot of fantasy elements. Steampunk often is really fantasy rather than strict science fiction. Uh, and uh, soap punk, uh, as I've constructed, is very similar in, in, in a lot of ways. It's also uh, a technology aesthetic, a technology vocabulary mixed with a particular worldview, uh, except that instead of Victorian England, it takes as its inspiration uh, the, the classical uh, antiquity of uh, East Asia, China, Japan, Korea, and to some degree Vietnam, uh, as well as a little bit of the Pacific Islands. Um, uh, during that time. So uh, as far as the technology vocabulary is concerned, uh, there's a lot of uh, in interesting contraptions being invented and constructed out of silk, bamboo, paper, feathers, um, uh, and being wind-driven, being animal, uh, sinew-driven, being, being water-powered, battle kites, uh, some rings that imitate whales, things like that, the sort of thing that either you can imagine uh, if the engineering practices of classical uh, antiquity of, of East Asia were continued and, and, and sort of carried to its logical extreme, uh, you can see. And also it pays homage to um, the great uh, Chinese uh, historical romances, which usually feature as, as one of the heroes, an engineering, an engineer of some sort, mm. who uh, invents uh, these amazing uh, devices. Uh, you know, Zhuge Liang or Kongming from uh, Romance of the Three, Three Kingdoms is, is a classical example. Uh, here's somebody who invented supposedly the auto crossbow, uh, who invented these uh, automata uh, that were supposedly able to carry um, uh, provisions for armies, and who invented uh, the first hot air balloons, essentially used for signaling. Uh, so that's the kind of uh, tradition I'm sort of working off of. At the same time, there's also uh, this um, philosophical outlook in, in, in soap punk, uh, as I've deemed it, uh, that again takes inspiration from uh, classical Chinese philosophy. Uh, it's this idea that you have multiple competing schools of thought, uh, all of which reveal aspects of the truth. Uh, there's a lot of um, interesting, uh, uh, the, the, the books uh, tend to be, uh, well, the two novels I've written so far, tend to be very much concerned with philosophical debates about what is a good ruler, what does it mean to be a good ruler, what is good governance, uh, can you really tell whether somebody's a hero or a villain, or do you have to wait for the judgment of history, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, just one last thing, um, this is not obvious from the name Soap Punk, uh, because uh, I think it gives the gives people the idea that it's, it's very much focused only on East Asia. It's actually not. The, the name um, uh, is a deliberate sort of provocatively named in order to show that there's a tension at the heart of the genre as I constructed it. Uh, Silk Punk takes a lot of inspiration from East Asian history and East Asian technology, but at its heart, the narrative techniques uh, are a blend of West and East. Uh, what it's really inspired by in a lot of ways are these Western epics, like the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid uh, and even Paradise Lost or Beowulf. Um, what, what I do here is I take these very different traditions that are very familiar to Western readers and I combine the narrative techniques used therein with the 
analogous techniques used in uh, East Asian uh, historical romances and, and histories. And I can combine them and sort of show how there are cross-cultural analogs and cross-cultural um, echoes uh, in the way uh, societies tell their fundamental myth. So the Grace of Kings, in a lot of ways, is a, is a reimagining of a foundational Chinese myth. And yet, because I'm using a lot of tropes and techniques derived from Western epic, uh, epics, uh, not, not so much epic fantasy, but rather epics, um, there's, there's, there's this really interesting tension between the way I'm presenting it, and I'm hoping that readers who are familiar with the sources I'm in conversation with will pick, on, pick up on that. And, and, and find the, the, the contrast and the tension rather interesting. So there's really a lot more to it than silk punk just being steampunk taking place in with Asian historical context. Uh, I, yeah, that, I think that's right. But I think um, if you're trying to pitch somebody and saying, you know, are you interested in this book? I think it's a, it's a nice little quick summary saying, well, if you like steampunk, you like magic and signs, you know, maybe you'll like this. It's 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 like it, but with a lot of East Asian elements. Are there any are there any other novels, any other authors working in that space yet, or do you feel as though it's pretty much currently confined to your trilogy and what you're working on? So I've given it that name. You know, this is this is me, uh, and I I don't claim to own the term. Uh, I, I'm not even sure people you know like the term that much. I like it, uh, but it, but uh, as far as I can tell, I don't think a lot of authors working in English certainly do do it that way. Um, in, in a lot of ways, what I've I've done in Soapunk actually is a little bit reminiscent of uh, of wuxia or martial arts um, uh, fantasy written in China and uh, and and. Um, uh, and, and sort of uh, that used to be very popular uh, maybe half a century ago. Um, there's there's also the same kind of uh, you know we have fantasies are, are really uh, fantasies in which people acquire extraordinary superhuman powers by practicing uh, philosophical martial arts, uh, and and they also contain a lot of. Um, uh, interesting inventions and novel inventions. So the aesthetic is a little bit similar. Um, and there are certainly some Chinese authors these days who do write um, sci-fi inspired um, uh, historical fantasy that makes use of similar techniques. Uh, there's actually a novella that I'm translating with uh, my friend Carmen, uh, Carmen Yan, uh, that we hope to um, uh, bring to Clarksboro pretty soon. And that I think would count as a soap punk fantasy. It's a, it's a fantasy tale written by the by a Chinese author uh, whose name is Zhang Ran. Uh, he's been published um, on Clark's World before, and uh, this is one of his favorite stories that I've read. It, uh, it's a historical fantasy, uh, but it features uh, people basically using movable type to implement an early version of the internet. Uh, so I, I, think, I think readers will find it really quite interesting. That's great. We have a question from one of our Goodreads members, uh, Silvana, who uh, she was a little concerned that maybe this was going to be a spoilery question. So we tried to take out some of the spoilery elements. Um, so you, at your discretion, answer what you will. I mean, it's, you know, it's still a, a new book out there in the world. So if you don't want to spoil it too much, then just say pass or answer what you can. She says, uh, will Gia get something better to do in the second book? I mean, she spent her life at home gathering herbs and raising children and waiting while her husband is getting into adventures and then a rivalry. Surely there's more to her as a main female character. Right. The, the reason why Gia is written that way is precisely to set up attention. So the three books are written in a specific arc. Uh, and uh, so, you know, this is not super spoilery, but... 
the arc is set up so that the first book um, sets out a revolution that is not complete. Uh, the, the book ends on a note of somewhat uneasy um, uh, piece. Uh, the second and third books are meant to continue the revolution in ways that are perhaps telegraphed in the first book, but not completely explored. Um, so Gia is actually possibly one of the most interesting characters uh, in the trilogy. You can, in some ways, argue that she is uh, she is in some ways the true hero uh, because uh, in the first book we sort of see her being set up to uh, to expect great things but being frustrated and thwarted in accomplishing those great things. Um, in the second book we'll see how she reacts to that and, and what she does. Um, I cannot say much more about what she does because it, it may lead to um, certain um, it, it will spoil things, but I will I will say this: there is a quote uh, in, in history uh, about history that uh, that I think um, I allude to in the first book. Uh, it's sort of a altered version of of an actual Chinese proverb. But the idea is, um, it's not possible to tell who is the hero and who is the villain of history, uh, even a thousand years later. Uh, and and that phrase applies particularly true um, to to somebody like Jia. That's that's all I will say. So Silvana should definitely read the next book. Um, well, uh, I think if she enjoyed the first book, uh, <laughs> or at least found it interesting in some way, she would definitely like the second book. Uh, and uh, if she found the first book interesting but frustrating in some ways, uh, I think she definitely should read the second book. All right. Uh, moving on to the paper Menagerie, uh, Jenny on our Goodreads forum asks, how does it feel knowing you made a grown woman cry because that's what happened when I read Paper Menagerie? Uh, I, I guess I could say sorry, not sorry. <laughs> that, would be, that would be very that bad. That seems right, yeah. Um, uh, I'm 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 uh, I'm really flattered, and of course very grateful that readers uh, you know react to that story. It, it resonates with them so strongly. Um, so yes, I'm very grateful um, that 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 story elicits such strong reactions. Tell us a little bit about the the short story collection. How long have you been working on these stories? Were they things that you've been sitting on for a while, or were they all newly written for the collection? So um, there's 15 story, there are 15 stories in there. 14 of them have been previously published. One of them is new. Um, so um, uh, they, they were written over, I think, the entirety of my short fiction career. I think the earliest story in there was written sometime in 2004. Uh, and of course, the, the last story uh, you know, for the collection was written in 2015. So they, they really do spend the whole decade of my short story career. Um, and also the book is, uh, is structured very interestingly. Uh, I mean, I can't claim to, to have the bulk of the credit for this, but uh, uh, my editor at Saga, Joe Monti, uh, really is the one who came up with the honor and, and organization. And he sort of analogizes the, the practice of picking a table of contents and, and sequencing the stories as being similar to making a mixtape. Uh, and, and then I think he, he did a really great job. Uh, the, the book is organized so that there are three anchor stories. There's there's the opening story, uh, which is, uh, I think, uh, sort of a statement about uh, really my aesthetics. Uh, and then the final story, which is my favorite story I've ever written. Uh, and then there's a story in the middle, um, uh, which is not the paper menagerie, uh, a story in the middle that I wrote just for the, just for the collection uh, called the 
uh, it's called an advanced reader's picture book of comparative cognition, uh, which I, I view as a companion piece to uh, the bookmaking habits that starts the the book, uh, as well as the the last story. Uh, it comes in the middle uh, and it anchors uh, sort of what I view as the most important part of of of, of my short fiction philosophy, which is that. Um, I, I do want the stories to um, say something about how it is we live our lives. That's something that we can feel, uh, but, 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 but can't put into words. Uh, and that's what I want to sort of express with my short fiction. That's great. And as I mentioned earlier, I have a physical copy of, of the book here. And I have to say, when I first opened it, I was just so struck by the beauty and the feel of the book and just the, the cover feels so wonderful. And, and I, I just love it. Did you have a major part in the design decisions around the book? I did, I did not. Uh, Saga did really an amazing job on this. Um, the, the, the art director, the, the artist that they hired to, to, to do the model, uh, everything was just, you know, wonderful. They, they did an amazing, amazing job. Uh, I can't say that I had much to do with it. Um, Saga had, you know, uh, I, you know, most authors know they don't have a whole lot of input into book covers um, because we don't really know what makes a book so. Uh, but Saga did an amazing job. Um, so I'm very, very uh, pleased with what they've done here. Yeah, it's really nice. Now, our last question comes from Andrew on Goodreads. Uh, and I, I think this is appropriate given the fact that you're not only an author yourself, but you're also a translator. So you are exposed to a lot of different kinds of works. And Andrew would like to know what book you would recommend. He says, I'm sure he's read a lot of different books than us. And hopefully uh, he picks something that has been translated. So he particularly wants to know, like, what's something that's been translated that maybe I haven't heard of or been exposed to that you might recommend I read? Obviously, three-body problem I would throw out there. but Yeah, I would, totally, I, I would totally put that out there. Um, there, there is a really, really awesome uh, sci-fi book translated from Japanese uh, that I think uh, has not gotten nearly as much attention as it, sh as it should. It's by Taiyo Fuji, uh, and it's called Gene Mapper. Um, it's uh, the way the author describes it. It's sort of like Neuromancer, but with rice. Uh, it's about it's about gene hackers uh, and, uh, and and biotech, and it's fascinating. It's a, it's a great book, uh, very well translated, and I think people would love it. Um, it's uh yeah I, I highly recommend it. It's Gene Mapper and what's the author's name again? Taiyo Fuji is T A I Y O and F U J I I I think I got that right. T A I Y O F U G F U J I I. That's right. Cool. Fantastic. And finally, uh, we ask all of our authors who come onto the show if they have any advice for newly beginning authors, people just getting started out in their careers. Uh. Gosh, I mean, uh, I, I, I mean, I can give advice, uh, but but I will preface it by saying that uh, writing advice is really cheap. Everybody has some, and uh, and and I guess the, the 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 best advice I would give is listen to a lot of people and then try them all out, and and just keep the ones that actually work for you, because writing is such a idiosyncratic and personal practice that advice that works for somebody else will not necessarily work for you, and if it doesn't work for you. Don't think there's something wrong with you. Uh, it probably just doesn't work for you. Uh, try something else until you figure out uh, a technique or a method that works for you. I mean, for example, a lot of writers swear by outlining, and, and they say that it makes them more efficient. It works for them. And it allows them to write better stories. Uh, outlining has never worked for me even a single time. Uh, and uh, I've, I've tried it many times. It does not work, and I don't bother outlining anymore. 
So it really is, you have to try different things and see what works for you. Fantastic. Yeah, I feel like the biggest roadblock for people starting out writing is trying to decide if they're actually any good at it or not. Uh, and, and the thing is, I know that people generally aren't as good at it as they're going to be when they start out. So, so what do you say to that person who's at that point of like, well, should I just drop this? It's just not my thing. So I, I'm going to say this. This is also not original to me. I think this is actually original advice being given by Ira Glass uh, on, uh, on, on This American Life. I think he says something like this, which is, if you're, an, uh, if you're trying to pursue an artistic endeavor, when you first start out, uh, the stuff you make will suck. They'll, they'll, they'll be bad. Uh, and the thing is, you'll know that they're bad. Uh, and, and that's actually a good thing. If, if you can tell that what you're creating near the beginning of your career is bad, that's a good sign because it means that you have very good taste. Um, and that's probably the most important thing an artist can have, which is to have good taste. If you can tell what is good and what is bad, and you can look at your own thing and say, this is not quite there, you're going to feel disappointed and frustrated. But don't despair, because that just means that you have good taste and your skills are not at the level where they can create things that your taste will judge to be adequate. Keep at it. Um, it's when you start feeling that you're actually producing really good stuff that you need to be careful because mm -hmm. it means either that your taste has been corrupted by your own stuff over time uh, or that you've really gotten better. And it's really hard to tell. It's really hard to tell. It's, it's actually one of the hardest things to do, which is to learn when to trust yourself and when to listen to your critics. Uh, I also say that, you know, I mean, this is not a problem for beginning writers so much as for writers who have has some experience with critique groups and so on. Um, one of the things about attending critique groups and, and, and doing workshops uh, that, that the writers have to learn over time is what advice to ignore. Uh, it's, it's very easy when you start out to take the approach of I know everything, I'm not going to listen to anybody, or the opposite, which is I'm going to listen to everybody because I have to be humble and I have to listen and I, I can't be an objective judge of my own stuff, I have to listen to everybody else. Both of these attitudes are terrible. Um, you, you have to learn over time what kind of advice is useless to you and you must ignore them and what kind of advice actually is useful and you have to listen to uh, critiquers who gave you that kind of suggestion. Um, but learning the difference takes a very long time and you have to have faith in your own taste. As I said, you have to have faith in your own taste and figure it out. It's possibly the most important thing that you can do. That's fantastic advice. Uh, thank you so much, Ken, for, for coming back on the show. Uh, where, where can everybody follow your work online? Other than KenLu.Pizza, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yes, KenLu.Pizza. Uh, so besides my website, yeah, where you can sign up for my uh, mailing list, uh, I send out an update once a month uh, with updates my, about my translations, talks, fiction, all sorts of other stuff. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter under KYLIU99. Uh, and uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So come on and say hi to me. <laughs> All right. Thank you. And our show, of course, is currently completely funded by our patrons over at patreon.com slash sword and laser. So if you enjoy interviews like these and want to hear more of them, head over patreon.com slash sword and laser. Give a little, get a lot of awesome interviews from authors like Ken. Tom usually then reads the next part of, oh, the, of the wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> I was busy putting his Twitter link in the show notes. Uh, yes, you can also support the show by buying books through our links. Find links to the books we talk about, including uh, I'll put in links 
to the books that Ken was recommending, as well as Grace of Kings, at swordandlaser.com slash picks. That's swordandlaser.com slash picks. I am definitely not editing that out of the podcast. And you guys, of course, can leave us a review on iTunes. We always appreciate those. Get in touch. Feedback at swordandlaser.com. Find all of our stuff on the web at swordandlaser.com. And all of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. We'll see you guys next time. At least you know the show notes will be complete. Yes, they will.